Wow, you all got quiet and I didn't even have to say anything. My name is Dr. Garrett Hope and I'm also the director of worship here. And so it's my pleasure to bring you the word today. Um, allow me to read to you the passage. This is from Mark 4, 35 to 41. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to be here and to give this message. I pray that you will bless my words and you will soften our hearts. And for those of us that come afraid, Father, may you be the comfort. Because you promised to be our comforter. I pray, Father, that for those of us who are worried and stressed and anxious, that they might find some truth and peace in us. In your name we pray. Amen. So some of you may not know this, but uh, one of the things I do, Terry, I'm hearing a ringing. I don't know if I'm feeding back, but one of the things I do is I teach at the university. And on my other side of my life, not only do I write music, but I help composers with the business side of writing music. So I have a platform where I do public speaking and I also do a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching. And when you're training to be a coach, one of the first things you have to learn how to do is how to ask good questions, good open-ended questions. It's a good pedagogical tool. Actually, Socrates thought of this a couple hundred years before Christ, right? We even call that the Socratic method, this dialoguing process of open, Open-ended questions is what it calls. I'm also a person who kind of, uh, my wife might say, a little compulsive. Um, sometimes I get on a kick, like I watched all of Arnold Schwarzenegger's films in a row, and I still love Arnold Schwarzenegger. But one of the things that I did is after CBC, where my wife met Pastor Evan and Pastor Jody, and and me, we were all at CBC together, is I was looking, I was reading my Bible, and it occurred to me that Jesus was doing a lot of teaching by asking questions. So I went through all four Gospels, and I wrote out in a notebook all the questions Christ asks. Some of them are rhetorical, some of them are instructive, some of them are corrective, but most of them, I think, are instructional. I think Jesus is teaching his people through asking good questions questions. And that's what he does here in this passage. Let me set it up for you. This is one of a series of four stories that Mark writes down in chapters four and chapter five. Four things that happen really quickly. The first is Jesus teaches about God's kingdom. He tells a parable about the sower, right? The seeds will fall on the hard ground or the fertile ground. And what he's talking about there is the kingdom of God. But he's also teaching the disciples about understanding. Because he says to them, how can you teach this? How can you not understand this if you're going to understand the kingdom? And then he 
goes in the boat and he calms the storm. So this is really a story about God's authority and power. This is about God being in control of all the dominions of the earth. And yet he also is dealing with fear of calamity. Because here the disciples are in a boat and they think they're going to die. And so he's dealing with that fear too. And then they go to cross the Sea of Galilee and they get off the boat and they encounter a demon-possessed man. And so it's about, again, God's authority over the spiritual realm But at the same time, he's dealing with fear of the supernatural and fear of evil. And when he heals this demon-possessed man, they're even more afraid of Jesus, right? What do they tell him to do? They say, go away. We don't like this. And then there's one more story. He goes and he brings a dead girl back to life and heals a woman. So again, about God's power and authority, and yet he's facing a specific fear, fear of death. Fear of separation. And in almost all these stories, he's asking questions of his disciples. But I want to focus today on fear because I think there are three things that we can pull out of this. The first is that God... Got to get to my notes. God calls us to do things, and sometimes it's scary. Like the song we just sang. When you call me out upon the waters, the great unknown... God will call us to do things or put us on a path and we don't know what's happening. And still, God is in control of all those situations. He is full of power and authority, even despite our fear and our anxiety. And that the last thing is Jesus scares that which scares you because he is bigger and more awesome than anything you can even imagine. Let's talk about fear. So fear, I have this great definition of fear here. And uh, fear is an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain, or is a threat. When we feel like ourselves or someone we love is in danger or is going to get hurt emotionally or physically, we experience fear. And fear is just an emotion. And I know what some of you are thinking, because clearly here God is saying, don't be afraid. And you're thinking, wait a second, doesn't the Bible also say we should be fearful of God? Passages like this from Psalm 43. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Those words that are translated in these types of passages, and there are many, of being fearful of God, is about awe and reverence and recognizing God's lordship. But what I want to focus on this morning is an unholy fear, the fear that causes you to do something. Because most of the time, we don't do something because we're afraid. There's lots of stuff I've done in my life, or I should say not done, because I was afraid. And when we're like the disciples and we're in the boat and God just said, get in the boat, we're going across the lake, and then storms come, what are we going to do? He's called us out into the water. Are you going to be afraid? Isaiah 43, 1 through 3, I think, is my favorite passage when it comes to dealing with this kind of fear. Because there's a great promise in it, too, about how God acts for us. And why we shouldn't be afraid. He says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. 
I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And God says this to his people after he just rescued them from the Assyrians. But he also said, because you sinned against me, the Babylonians are going to come, and you're going to go into captivity. And now he says, don't be afraid. He's called them out into the water, the great unknown. And he says, don't be afraid. I have called you by name. You are mine. And that's the beautiful thing, because God will remain with us no matter what storms we're facing. Because we're not promised a life of no danger, pain, or threat, but we do have a promise of not being abandoned. Just like we saw in Isaiah, God will never leave you God will never forsake you, no matter what fear you're experiencing. Imagine you're one of the disciples. You just heard him tell this crazy agricultural story, and you didn't get it. I mean, the passage says they didn't understand, so they had to ask Jesus to explain. And he says, you have to understand this. So you're still trying to wrap your head around that, and Jesus is tired, you're tired, and he says, let's just get in the boat and go across the lake. And it's already nighttime. Like, this is not the time people go out in the boats and they cross the Sea of Galilee. And then the storm comes up, and you think you're going to die. And Jesus calms the storm after you wake him up. And there's no indication that it took a while for the storm to die away, right? It's instant. Jesus said, be quiet. And it was quiet. And then he turns to them, he looks them in the eye, and he says, why are you so afraid? Wow. Do you hear that with rebuke? Is that how your father would speak to you when you did something wrong? Because Jesus could have said, why are you so afraid? Or do you hear it like the tender teacher? Why are you so afraid? And I think that's more what God is doing here. He's, he's helping them reflect, teach in that Socratic method to examine what it is their root causes. They have the Lord of the universe in their boat who just proved that he has control of the entire earth by calming the storm. He says, why are you afraid? You don't need to be afraid. Not at all. Some of us have lots of reasons to be afraid, right? Storms come up in our lives. And if we knew in advance what would happen, would we do these things? Would we get married if we knew that our marriage was going to end in divorce? That's a storm. Would you have a child if you knew your child would be sick and full of pain? What if your spouse dies? What if you lose your job? But you don't know what's going to happen in the future, do you? If you don't know someone or you're not sick yourself, you will experience that in your family. So these storms are going to come. And what are you going to do about it? Are you going to act in fear, or are you going to trust the Lord who's in control of it all? That's what Christ is asking. One of my favorite set of stories is C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. How many of you guys have read this? All of them. They are so good. And in these fictional kind of fantasy stories, there's another world called Narnia. 
And there's a Christ-like character in the form of a lion named Aslan. And so we get to see the creation of the world, and Aslan deals with all these situations, and they, they mirror these biblical stories. And the same way Jesus taught with parables, you can read stories like this and get a better understanding of his kingdom and how Christ rules in the world. But in this book, this is called The Horse and His Boy, which is, might be one of my favorites. There is this character named Shasta who was an orphan and raised in a terrible situation. And through a series of events, he has to run away from his home. And he has to flee across the desert, and all he has is a horse. And he meets another person along the way, Erevis, and they're fleeing. And they have to get to Narnia because Narnia has the promise of peace, of hope. And he's terrified because he has to cross this desert. And a whole bunch of things happen. And right as he's about to get to Narnia, he gets separated from his partner. And there's an enemy army coming behind them. And he knows, because he overheard them, that they're going to not only just kill him and his partner, but they want to kill all the Narnians and take over the kingdom. And he feels like he has to go and save the world. He has to get the word out. And he gets separated, and he's trapped in the mountains in this heavy, dark mist. And he's afraid and he's alone. And I want to read you a passage right where this happens. And being very tired and having nothing inside him, he felt so sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing. And the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale. And Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature, and he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. It darted into his mind that he had heard long ago that there were giants in these northern countries, and he bit his lip in terror. But now that he really had something to cry about, he stopped crying. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so very quietly that Shasta began to hope he had only imagined it. But just as he was becoming quite sure of it, there suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him that couldn't be imagination. Anyway, he had felt the hot breath of that sigh on his chilly left hand. If the horse had been any good or if he had known how to get any good out of the horse, he would have risked galloping away on a breakaway. But he knew he couldn't make that horse gallop, so he went on at a walking pace, and the unseen companion walked and breathed beside him. At last, he could bear it no longer. Who are you? He said, scarcely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are you... Are you a giant? asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard. Then, for an even more terrible idea had come into his head, he said, almost in a scream, You're not, you're not dead, are you? Oh, please, please go away. What harm have I ever done to you? Oh, I am the unluckiest person in the whole world. Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost, 
Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he had told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and of all the other dangers in Tashban and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus and also how very long it had been since he had anything to eat. Oh, I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions? asked Shasta. There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night, and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay a child near death so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Erebus? It was I. But what for? Child, said the voice, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice very deep and low so the earth shook and again myself loud and clear and gay and then the third time myself whispered so softly you could hardly hear it and yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to someone that would eat him nor that it was the voice of a ghost but a new and different sort of trembling came over him yet he felt glad too Shasta was called out on the waters into the great unknown, full of fear, yet he was never alone. He just didn't know it. Whether you know it or not, you're never alone either. So I want to ask you, why are you so afraid? What's stopping you from doing that which God has called you to do? Has he called you into a ministry has he called you to work with the refugees? Has he called you into part of our community? Maybe to be up front. Maybe to lead in a different way. Maybe he's calling you to do something different with your money. Maybe he's calling you into a new job. Let me remind you of what Isaiah says. Can I have that slide up, Sarah? Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You're not alone. And when you recognize that, 
you can actually move from the fear of trembling and terror to the fear of awe and reverence, like Shasta did, like the disciples did. Because how does our passage end? Jesus says, why are you so afraid? And in one sentence, it says, the disciples were terrified. Some translations say they stood there in awe, shaking in their boots. I mean, I'd be afraid of someone who could just turn a storm off like that, too. I want to end my sermon today by singing you a song. And I've kind of cajoled my wife into joining me up here because it takes two parts. And this is something that she's had to face some fear in doing, too. So I want to, we want to sing this for you.
pray. Father, we claim your promise that you will not abandon us, you will not leave us, you will not forsake us. Because sometimes we do get called into storms and we have to move forward in faith. And we, we trust you, Father. May we learn to bring you our fears and our anxieties and the things that are stopping us from taking action, the action you've called us to do. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.